welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by economist Dr. Robin Hanel. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be with you, Sylvia. Now, we've been told that capitalism is something that is cyclical, that it's always going to bounce back up. But as we saw within the 1920s, that there were three decades that you know, the, the economic downturn just seemed to go on forever. Can you we talk a little bit about how does it compare to the cycle of downturns that we've been experiencing since 2008? And what does it mean for us on the left in terms of creating an economic planning that meets the needs of the people? The big picture is that capitalism one of the features of capitalism is that it frequently experiences you know large drop-offs in economic activity that nobody seems to be able to do anything about and this has been going on from time immemorial there are versions of capitalism that have managed to figure out ways to use what is commonly called fiscal policy and monetary policy to prevent these downturns from being as bad as, as they would otherwise be. That revolution in economic thinking and the practicing of fiscal and monetary policy to, you know, to diminish the magnitude of recessions and depressions and to avoid financial crises, um, that was commonly known as sort of Keynesian economic theory. Um, but over the past 40 or 50 years, that theory has fallen, you know, out of vogue. It's been replaced by, you know, a very neoliberal version of how capitalist economies should run. And as a result, we have gone backward in terms of how much pain we periodically go through um, because the economy simply doesn't operate on all cylinders. People lose jobs. When they lose jobs, they don't have money to buy things. And then there's more jobs lost. That kind of dynamic and financial crises um, have become more prevalent over the past 40 years in what you might call the neoliberal era. That, together with the greatest escalation of inequality of wealth and income in the history of the world, in human history, um, is basically what characterizes our present age. I find interesting that um, we are facing you know, one of the worst financial crashes in history since the Great Depression. You know, we've been we've been told in 2008 when Obama came into power, a lot of people were hopeful that the first black president, right, uh, we would have some economic evolution, perhaps, you know, and rather than doing things as, as it's always been done. So what have we learned, though? Because it seems that we keep reinventing the capitalist system and trying to fix it and tinker with it. But in the end, it's an extractivist system of economics that depends on an unlimited uh, world to exploit, extract from. So is it time for us to reconsider what else is possible? It puts us in a very difficult situation. Progressives in the left, you know, are not in a good situation. 
on the one hand, we have a version of capitalism that is unnecessarily self-destructive in terms of an aggravated business cycle you know, that no longer is sort of managed sensibly, and in terms of increasing dangers of financial crisis. The other thing that has gone on at the same time, which I think has actually become an even bigger crisis, is that I don't believe that capitalism necessarily had to be dominated by the fossil fuel industries as its most powerful industry. There's a debate on the left about whether or not you know, it's possible to have capitalism that doesn't destroy the planet you know, in terms of, of causing climate change. And one of the things that I mentioned to people, I said, well, what if three, four hundred years ago, you know, religions had been religions that that looked at extracting oil or coal from out of the ground? Well, that was simply something that religion didn't allow. It was, you know, it was it was a blasphemy. Well, then capitalism would have still evolved and it would not have evolved with an energy sector that was dominated by fossil fuels. And it would still have been capitalism, and it would have still had all, all the other problems that capitalism is associated with. But that is not actually what happened historically. Instead, what happened historically was that capitalism evolved, and it evolved with an energy system that was dominated by fossil fuel burning. The scientists now tell us this is a bona fide disaster. Um, we have a very short time period to do something about it. And yet, not only do we have neoliberal capitalism and its incredible increase in economic inequality and its incredible increasing tendency to have financial crises, recessions and depressions, we have a version of capitalism that continues to be dominated by the fossil fuel industry that is basically preventing the solution of the problem that faces humanity and civilization as we know it. So that's the context in which we operate. And I think what it means is two things. Progressives and people of goodwill have to do two things. We have to do everything we can, you know, to do something about preventing climate change short of replacing capitalism worldwide, because it's just not going to happen fast enough. And we have to do things that prevent the pain of rising inequality and periodic crises, you know, from affecting people. We have to fight for reforms and try and elect candidates that will do the best that's possible, you know, protecting people from the ravages of neoliberal capitalism. At the same time, and I think young people seem to increasingly get this, young people increasingly get the idea that this system is just not a good system. There, there is now a lot more popular support, particularly amongst the younger population, for something that vaguely is called an alternative to capitalism, some sort of socialism. So I think that also is, in the long run, the solution. Now, you have been a, a wonderful, not only observer, but also deeply participant in the development of a of an economics, you know, a plan economics for people from the bottom up. Looking at our social movements, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, beginning in the shadow of the largest financial crash, you know, in, in 2010, from which we haven't recovered yet, 
We have seen many movements. We saw the Occupy movement, you know, an idea that uh, horizontalist response to the financial crisis, you know, will allow us to not only um, reform, but also transform the way we see ourselves um, being impacted by economic, you know, the, the economic system we engage with. Um, we also saw movements around the world, you know, we saw in Europe the left-wing parties and various kinds, you know, like Syriza in Greece and Podemos in Spain. And all of this very good energy of youth and, you know, mobilizing and imagining a world that it is also global in its resistance to capitalism because transnational corporations don't see nations, they, they see capital. So what have we learned? What, what can we draw from now that we have been forced to retreat into isolation through the fear of pandemic, through the fear of rep you know, repression from governments who have used the pandemic to repress their populations. In some countries, we've seen how martial law has returned, forcing people into their homes. And so our ability to come together to share ideas, to unite and you know, reimagine our world, because we, we are part of it, um, has seemed to be curtailed. What do you see are some of the lessons that we need to remember and keep alive and keep returning to? The people running the world are doing a worse and worse job of it. That becomes apparent to people. But the reaction can take two forms. Part of the reason that we're getting the rise of right-wing fascist um, political tendencies in some places in the world um, is because the system isn't working. And that's one response. The other response is a progressive response. You just mentioned a number of things that have been very, very positive over the past 15 or 20 years. You mentioned, you know, Syriza in Greece that said, the European Union, you are creating a disaster in Greece. We can't let this happen. Now, Syriza and that government basically was beaten down. And the same thing happened in Spain with the rise of Podemos. And you mentioned occupying the United States. And there was uncut in England at approximately the same time. There was the Arab Spring. And in Latin America, we have the recent Chilean election. What, what we're observing is a period of history in which there are tremendous crises that are being created by the present entrenched system. And there's basically two responses to it. One that's progressive coming from the left and the other that is going back to fascism, going back to racism and going back to authoritarianism, which is not a solution for any of the problems. You know, I've spent most of my intellectual life working on, you know, a desirable alternative capitalist economy. I, I work with larger expanding group of people, you know, believe that this is a vision that is attractive, that we we participate in conferences. And people I work with participated in literally 10 or more conferences about alternatives to capitalism. There was one in Germany that was organized largely by libertarian socialists or anarchist groups in Germany. You know, yesterday there was one that took place in Shanghai, although it was virtual, World Association of Political Economists. And it was basically Chinese members of that association that organized a huge conference. 
and there were panels about alternative to capitalism, etc. This is something that is more actively discussed as the present system is clearly more and more dysfunctional. Um, particularly young people are interested in talking about solutions, and they want solutions that aren't the same as the same old stuff that socialists were selling in the 20th century. They don't want Soviet communism. They don't want Leninism and, and Leninist political parties, but they want to know, well, what is the alternative? And they want to hear some concrete answers. They don't want to hear platitudes about we want an economy you know, that's democratic. We want an economy that's fair. Well, yeah, of course, who doesn't? But that's not the same as, you know, well, how would you go about doing that? And what have you learned from failures to attempt to do that, you know, in the past? So there is a lot of work that's going There's a lot more work going on in that regard, you know, than at any point in my lifetime. On the other hand, every day when I open up the newspaper, I read three or four newspapers first thing in the morning. And most of it is just very frightening and scary stuff. That just makes me think, wow, there are so many things that could go so wrong so quickly. How are we going to manage to avoid that and instead uh, prevent disaster while we're building for a better future? I think that's just the nature of the beast and will be for some time. That's beautiful. I love that you mentioned that because in many ways, for a lot of people, they think of September 11 as something that happened in the United States. But for Latin Americans, September 11 is about Chile. You know, introduction of neoliberalism by coercion, by, you know, brute force. And you mentioned how the recent elections not only bring us renewed hope, you know, to see how the countries of the South are continuing to move in the direction against austerity, against neoliberalist campaigns, you know, of more uh, cutbacks to the social networks that we have fought for generations now. So what excites you about the social movements of the 21st century and the possibilities that we are able to co-create that you are seeing taking root perhaps from some of the conferences you've attended, but also from your own local community uh, activism? I was terribly, terribly anxious about the Chilean election because Something similar is, I mean, there, there's something that's happening most places right now, which is the shrinking of the political middle. I mean, that's happened in the United States. You see that happening in Europe. Um, and in Chile, it certainly was very, very, very clear that the attractiveness of the sort of political middle had worn down to the point where there was an election in Chile that just happened where there was a candidate who was very clearly out there on the left, and there was another candidate that was basically in praise of Pinochet and everything he had done and stood for. And in that situation, it's almost ironic that in some ways the shrinking of the political middle is a scary thing. On the other hand, it gives rise to opportunities for a candidate on the left who is much more bold about changes that have to be made to get elected. Now, had the, the, the fascist won the election in Chile, it would have been a disaster. I mean, it would have been sending Chile back 50 years in time. On the other hand, what happened was a very progressive candidate, far more progressive than I think could have been elected in Chile in a different political environment, you know, before the shrinking of the political middle there. 
And so I'm very optimistic about that. Now, you and I both know we have seen left governments, progressive governments, you know, win elections in Latin America over the past 20, 20 years. And most of the time, they have basically fallen on hard times. They have been unable to implement their programs. And it hasn't seemed to matter really very much whether it was a President Clinton or a President Biden a president, or, or a President Obama or it was a President Bush or it was a President Trump in terms of U.S. Latin for, you know, foreign policy in Latin America. So we've seen this. We've seen this in Argentina. We've seen this in, in, in Ecuador. We've seen this in Venezuela. We're seeing we've we've seen this in Uruguay and now we're seeing sort of used to be called the pink tide in Latin America. And I don't know whether it's pink tide anymore, but Chile is the newest situation in which we have a progressive government coming to power in a Latin American country that is committed to and was voted in by 55 percent of the population on a program that says we want large, large progressive changes. So what will come of that remains to be seen. But it's certainly a very, very positive thing. And positive things like that have continued to happen and I believe will continue to happen. And what we need to do is make sure that when they happen, that they are more successful. And and we'll see whether that's possible. Now, as we... Um come to the towards the end of our interview I want to focus a little bit on the West you know because in the US there is a lot of influence right of US intervention in the region and as you point out the global south is doing what they what they can to resist to uh, to create new alternatives and their success will be dependent on the level of mobilization we have internally within the U.S. and in Canada, you know, where through, you know, whether it be military or economic invasion, many of those movements have been co-opted and disrupted. I mean, it remains the job of people in the United States to do everything within our power to prevent our elected government, whether Democratic administration or Republican administration, from interfering in negative ways in the political affairs of Latin American countries. I think that's a sacred duty of progressive U.S. citizens. And we need to continue that battle. And unfortunately, we don't have either of our political parties, you know, that can be trusted to do what Franklin Roosevelt once called back in the 1930s, when Mexico was the most sort of progressive and revolutionary government in Latin America back in the 1930s. The United States had to make a decision about, well, how are we going to interact? Are we going to try and essentially, you know, work against, you know, the forces, the progressive forces in Mexico? And Roosevelt announced something he called the good neighbor policy. We need a good neighbor policy toward Latin America. I mean, that should be the goal of progressives in the United States. And we have not had one since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was very short-lived under Frank. You can question whether it was sincere under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but it certainly has not been a good neighbor policy any place in Latin America ever since. And that remains one of the sort of ugly historical legacies, you know, of U.S. political history that, that needs to be overcome and it's people inside the United States that have to continue to work to do that. Tell us about your latest book. I've been working on this project 
how would you actually make all the decisions be made? How would you do this in a way that that outcomes are fair? That you know, when people exert greater effort and make greater sacrifices in work, yes, they're rewarded more. But that that's basically you know the system for how it is we reward you know people for working in the economy. How do you answer the dilemma that 20th century socialism faced? That when you plan an economy, the planning can be taken over by a planning agency, and people are essentially disenfranchised. They no longer have you know, much say over what it is that's going on in their workplace, what they produce and how they produce it and how they go about it. How can you basically breathe self-management and autonomy into a socialist economy? So I've been working on this project for a long, long time. And, and I'm sort of happy that democratic economic planning, which was published by Rutledge in, the, in July last year, is sort of the, it's the product of all that. I'll, I'm going to say this with tongue in cheek, but it's, it's my magnum opus. It's sort of the complete, it's whatever I have to offer at this point in my life at the end of 50 years of working on this. And one thing I'm very proud of is there were a lot of questions that, that I don't think we had ever really proposed answers to before. I mean, we had made proposals about how worker councils and neighborhood consumer councils can, can do annual planning. We had not, you know, up until recently, we hadn't been able to do computer simulations of the planning process to see, well, just how long would it take and would it be too much of a burden on people's time to go through this planning process? And one of the things I'm really happy about in the new book is we publish the results of our computer simulations that say people who feared that this kind of participatory planning would just take up so much of people's time that it becomes an, a practical impossibility, that those fears seem to be unwarranted that, in fact, the annual planning can be done in a very, very reasonable time period. But we hadn't talked about investment planning. We hadn't talked about long-term environmental planning. We hadn't talked about strategic international economic planning. I mean, the way socialism is going to come about, we're not going to have a world revolution. I mean, at one point in time, socialists thought, back in the early part of the 20th century, late 19th, 20th century, that once socialism came, it would be a world revolution. Lenin and the Bolsheviks thought there was going to be a socialist revolution, you know, in Europe, you know, in the aftermath of World War I. And there might have been, but there wasn't. It's now clear to me that what will happen is that countries will try and develop socialist economies sort of one country at a time. And that means that a country that's trying to do, trying to develop a socialist economy is going to have to deal in a world where most of the other countries have capitalist economies, where there continue to be large differences in levels of economic development. So we had never addressed before, and now we do in this book. Well, concretely, how would a, a socialist country engage in international trade? Would it engage in international financial investment? Would it engage in direct foreign investment? How would it go about doing those things? It's written both for activists and for economists, because economists want to know whether planning procedures, well, can you... Can you do a formal analysis of the planning procedure and under what assumptions can you prove that certain things will happen? So we've provided those kinds of answers for professional economists, but we've also provided answers to all sorts of questions about how would this be decided? How would that be decided? And maybe our answers aren't all the best answers, but at least they are answers so you can argue about it. You can talk about it. So our attempt is to sort of 
advance the intellectual quality of discussions going on amongst people out there who do think we need to have something at some point in the 21st century that is not a capitalist economy. What does it look like? What, how would it be? What would make it more desirable? How would all the problems that have to be solved get solved in ways that are better? So for the first time, um, address in an entire chapter the issue of reproductive labor because reproductive labor raises issues that are different from the kind of work that goes on in factories and farms. How is it organized? How is it rewarded? And how, what measures are we going to have to take to make sure that the sexist bias of both the organization carrying out and reward for reproductive labor, you know, does not continue in a desirable society, which it should not. So on that issue, there's some concrete new proposals and discussion for people to chew on. Also, with regard to what is necessary to overcome, the, you know, the legacy of racism. Thank you so much for all the ways that you engage with. I guess you know one of the primary ways that we see ourselves. You know, economics to me is just another social organizing system, and yet. Uh, most people are left to believe that it's so complicated, so complex, we should be left out. But in your book, you're inviting us to be part of this democratic planning, and I think that's refreshing. Thank you again for all the work that you put into this. And for people who want to access your book, how can they learn more about it? Where do they get it? It, it was published in July, and it's available in hardback, way too expensive. That's for libraries. It's available in paperback. It's also available as an ebook, so you can get it on a Kindle. You can do it that way. It was published by Rutledge. There is another book that covers similar ground, but is addressed to non-economists, and that book is called A Participatory Economy, and it will be published by AK Press um, here in the United States, and it'll be published in sort of probably by July 2022. So by July, by this summer, there'll be another book that comes out. The second book is very explicitly written for people who are not economists. It's covering these issues, but you don't have to have had you know, considerable economic training to go through a lot of the material. Whereas the, the Democratic Economic Planning book, it's got all the tough stuff and the technical stuff in there. So it's, it's heavy going. But it's, it's Rutledge sells it on their website. Amazon, of course, sells it. Um, and it will be in university libraries because I think it's the kind of book where its lasting value, you know, will be because it's, it's on the university library selves and it can be used in classes, people who are studying economics and, and economics that's an alternative to capitalist economics. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was great being with you, Sylvia. Take care. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.